Our Bibles now, if you would please, to uh, Revelation chapter 11. And once you've found that, you might want to uh, put your finger over in Exodus chapter 25. We're not going to read much from there, but I'm going to be referring to it in a few minutes. Uh, This evening, we're looking into this last chapter of Revelation, but I'm sort of taking a break from the regular study. And I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, one that I think is a good tangent for us to go on. And tonight I want to discuss the Ark of the Covenant. It's been over four years since we had a study on the tabernacle, and uh, we came to this very unique piece of furniture that was placed into the tabernacle, which was a very significant part of Israel's history and Israel's worship. The Ark of the Covenant, like all of the uh, parts of the tabernacle, were patterned after heavenly things. And as we look into this 11th chapter, John was able to see into heaven and to see that ark that was there, which was actually the pattern for the ones that were made here on the earth. So I want to take a little bit of the break in, in the study here to preach about the symbolism of this ark. Now, if you have a, a want to have, I should say, a better idea of what Jesus has done for us and about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there's simply no better place than you can go than to the tabernacle. Everything that was put in it, one way or another, spoke about Christ and his redemptive work. And so again, when heaven was opened up, as we see here in this 11th chapter, John was able to look into heaven and see that ark that was the pattern for the one that was made by Moses. Now, we're going to read just this one verse for our text tonight. In Revelation chapter 11, verse number 19, if you'd stand with me, please. And this evening, we're going to discuss the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 19 of Revelation 11, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of his Testament. And there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity that we have to look into your word tonight. And what a magnificent subject that we have before us this evening, the Ark of the Covenant that speaks of Jesus Christ. Bless us in this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The scripture says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of his Testament. Now, for the past few messages, we've been discussing a synopsis of the final chapters of Revelation. We've reached the midpoint of the book, and what we find here in verses 15 through 19 in this chapter is the story of how Christ will redeem the earth. Now, the progression of the story has actually stopped, and God allows the saints that are going through the tribulation period a brief time of rest so they can look up here and and see what's going to happen. God lets them know that he's still in control, that he is going to redeem this world from the curse, and he's just giving these tribulation saints a, a time of rest and a time to regather themselves and look forward to that great hope. So God is going to take control, he's, or he's in control, but he's going to, he shows the people how he's going to break the power of Satan, break the power of the Antichrist, and all of those evil angels and everyone who stands against him. Now, in the end of the 11th chapter, we read these words, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. Last week, we had the opportunity to talk about that temple. The temple is the place of God's dwelling. It's a place of communion of God with his people. 
And it's very important that we understand that all of heaven, as John looks into it, all of heaven is God's temple. It's not localized to a street address. It's not one particular place on uh, one of the golden corridors in heaven. But all of heaven is God's temple and God's throne. The temple in heaven served as a blueprint for the tabernacle that Moses made in the wilderness. And so when the children of Israel were crossing the desert and they were on the way to the promised land, God gave them laws to live by. He, he gave them a special system of worship and he said, you can't alter this. It was very precise. Everything had to be exactly like God said it should be. And this worship of God was encapsulated in this place that was called the tabernacle. The ceremonial laws that accompanied the tabernacle worship were all to central, uh, centralize or focus on one character. The tabernacle was all about Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of the eternal God who would come who in, 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 in the form of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, and he would come and he would give his life as a sacrifice for our sins, and he would redeem us, and he would take away the curse that's upon us. So everything that was put into the tabernacle somehow related to the person and the work of Christ. Uh, this evening, I don't have time to go into the details of the tabernacle. I, w- I wish that uh, we could just take time to do that. If we did, we'd sit here for seven months because that's how long it took us last time to really look at all the things that were there. But I can tell you just very briefly about some of the things that you would see when you went into the tabernacle. Uh, if you approached the tabernacle from the outside, the first thing that you would see was a white linen fence that surrounded the entire structure. That white linen fence spoke of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There was a way to go into it. There was a gate that opened into the tabernacle uh, courtyard. And there that gate was representative that every person who is to come to God must come through the person of Jesus Christ. When you got inside of the linen fence, there was a brazen altar there. And that's where they made the sacrifices. And that brazen altar spoke of the uh, the cross of Christ. That's where he would be sacrificed for our sins. Just beyond that, before you went into the tabernacle proper, there was a golden laver. And that's where the priests would come and they would wash themselves after making the sacrifice. And they did that because that pictured the washing of the Word of God. That before we can come into the presence of God, we have to be washed clean. Not only through the Word, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also through the blood of Jesus Christ. The pollution of sin must be washed away. And then we could go on and we could talk about things that are inside the tabernacle. There was that golden lampstand that was there that gave light for the inside. And that spoke of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. Across from that was the table of showbread. And that represented Christ as the bread of life. And then just before you went into the Holy of Holies, there was another little altar there called the altar of incense. And that stands for uh, Jesus Christ, who is right now our intercessor. But then beyond that, you came to a curtain. You came to a veil. And that veil represented the body of Jesus Christ. Now, that is one of the clearest pictures that we have in the New Testament because the Bible very clearly tells us exactly what the veil represented. It says that this is the body of Christ. That is the flesh of Jesus Christ. And then when you pass through the veil... 
go through the veil, which is representative of the body of Jesus Christ, there you would come to the most significant thing that was in all of the tabernacle. There was one article that represented most clearly the power of Christ, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the offering of Christ, the satisfaction of Christ, the provision of Christ, the presence of Christ, the communion with Christ, the blood of Christ. All of it was right there in that one little piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the real focal point of all of Israel's worship. Now, when the ark was present, that meant that God was present. It was the most sacred, most holy piece that was put into the tabernacle. It was the most feared because that was a symbol of Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so the ark of the covenant was after the pattern of the ark of the testimony that's in heaven because Christ is heaven's king. Now, the book of Revelation that we're studying is, of course, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the king, and he's the redeemer of man. But in the Old Testament, we had these pictures, and they're also a revelation of Christ. And that's why I want to talk to you about the Ark of the Covenant tonight, because it is also a revelation of Christ. Now, we'll look first of all this evening at the focal point of worship. This is what the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the focal point of worship. Now, you might want to peek just for a moment there over at Exodus chapter 25. I'm going to refer to that as we go along here. But the command for Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant is found in that chapter. The Ark was a wooden box that was overlaid with gold. It was rectangular, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. The wood that they used to build that Ark is representative of the humanity of Christ. The gold that overlaid it is representative of his deity. And, of course, that teaches us that Jesus was both God and man. And so that's pictured in the materials that they used to build this ark. Now, the ark is the focal point because it represents Christ as a person. And that's what we need to know most about Jesus, and that is who he is as a person. He's not just an object of worship. He's not an icon. He is a person. He's not a half-naked man hanging on a crucifix. Jesus Christ is a person. And he is the most important person that you could ever know. Because the scriptures show us that if you don't know him, your life on this earth is nothing. Your, Your life is futile. It's hopeless. And worse than that, the Bible even says that you're doomed and damned without him. Now, he is so important, so vitally important. But there's a lot of false information about him. Many people only see Christ or Jesus as a human. They know that he did good things, and they know that he was a good man. No one today seriously doubts the existence of Jesus, but the thing that they really don't know about him is they don't know him as God. They don't know him as the only one who can save them from their sins and the only one who can save them from an everlasting hell. And so God makes Jesus the focal point because only through him do we have access to the Father and to eternal life. And so in this most holy place, the holy of holies that was in the tabernacle, there you would find God's most important article, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. Now the priest would go behind the veil. He was only allowed to go there one day per year. He was only permitted to see it on that particular day. And that told Israel, it told the people that this was a unique, most exceptional article of furniture. 
Now let me show you two aspects of the ark that make it the focal point of Israel's worship. First of all, it is a a sacred throne, because there we find the presence of God. The ark is a sacred throne because it had a lid on it. It had a covering on it called the mercy seat, and that was a throne of grace. To go into the Holy of Holies and to see that ark was to actually come into the presence of God. Hebrews says in Hebrews 9 verse 24, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So it's made after the pattern of the ark in heaven, and in heaven today there is Jesus Christ who appears before God for us. Now that ark represented uh, Christ who is now appearing in heaven. And so whenever the priest came into that inner sanctuary, there he came and he was greeted by the presence of God. And there the presence of God was manifested in this brilliant light that we call the Shekinah glory. Now the word Shekinah is not actually in the Bible, but it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means that which dwells. And so Shekinah is a word that describes God's presence. And I believe that that is one of the most meaningful aspects of the ark, and that is to know God's presence. When you are in God's presence, there's always safety. There's always protection. When you come to God through Christ, you have a personal guarantee of your safety and security. In fact, Scripture promises that. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you're eternally saved. You can never be separated from the love of God. Now, in the Bible, we actually find that there are three arks that were made. And not surprisingly, each of these arks represents safety. Now, you know what the first ark is? That's Noah's ark. In Noah's ark, there were eight members of Noah's family that were saved. They were kept safe and protected from the waters of the flood. When Noah was building that ark, God told him to seal the ark with pitch. And that's an interesting word in the Old Testament because it's a word that comes from the same word as atonement. And so what it represents then is security, safety in Christ. No storms, no water, nothing could penetrate that ark. The inhabitants were protected. And so Noah, as a righteous man, was protected from God's wrath. And that's the same thing that we find in Christ. The second ark that was made was the ark of Moses. And this is when uh, Moses' mother made an ark of bulrushes. And you remember that she placed... Moses into that ark and that protected him from Pharaoh's judgment. Uh, Pharaoh had decreed that all the male babies in Israel would be killed. And so uh, in order to protect Moses, his mother put him into that little ark and set him adrift on the Nile River. But Moses was safe. Now what had she done? Well, she had also sealed that little ark with pitch. And that was God's protection. So it was waterproof. So there was safety in that ark and that represented Christ. And then the subject that we have tonight in Exodus uh, and also what we're reading in Revelation, God commanded an ark to be built. And this was the Ark of the Covenant. And that speaks of safety because that's the place where God is. The presence of God is there. And so there's nothing that we could ever fear when we're in God's presence. So we say that about it. The, The Ark is a sacred throne of God's presence. And Then the Ark was also put into a secret room. And that tells us about the secrecy of the plan of God. There was an element of mystery about the ark. No one could see behind the veil. When, whenever the ark was transported from place to place, 
Israel knew that there was something very special about it. They weren't allowed to see it because it was covered up. And they carried it and, uh, from different places, uh, place to place, but they were never permitted to touch it. Never were they permitted to peer inside of the ark. And certainly, as we've already said, they weren't able to enter into the tabernacle to see it. So there was, sec- there was secrecy in the ark. And what that shows us is the fullness of the glory of Christ is hidden by his humanity. There's only rare glimpses that have ever seen of the glory of Christ and the, and the glory of the Father. All that we know about the Father, the Word of God tells us, must come through the revelation of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Until the way is completely opened up, until we come into the presence of God, as long as there is a veil there, as, as long as, as uh, we're, we're hidden from God in that way, we're not going to be able to see the glory of God. Now again, that veil that was in the tabernacle typified the flesh of Christ. And when the veil is removed, when the veil was torn in two, when Christ was crucified and the way to the Holy of Holies was opened up, that symbolized that the way to God is open. But until then, the glory of God and the purpose of God, the plan of God actually remain secret. Now, as we look into the Old Testament, we find that the plan of God or the plan of salvation was just a shadow. There were some things that they understood about it, but they didn't have a complete understanding of the same things that we know today. And so the mystery was veiled until Christ came. Now, here's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 16. He said, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. And that mystery of God that was secret from the very beginning has now been revealed in Christ. Now, wonderfully, what we see in the book of Revelation is no longer the mystery, a mystery. The the ark is not hidden there. It's opened up because now Christ has made a clear, unobstructed path to the Father. A once-for-all sacrifice had to be made. And when that was made, when the way was opened, when we saw Christ as the way, then that's when John is able to see the ark. Christ opens up the way. Just as the scripture says, as Jesus said himself, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So now we have a revelation of God's plans and purposes. They become clearer and clearer as we go through the book of Revelation because there we see the method of God's lifting the curse from the entire world and reclaiming the world as its own. And John is able to see all that revelation in this book that God gave him. Now, secondly, we want to look at the ark as the figure of worship. If, if the ark represents the Son of God, if this is Jesus, then Jesus, or this ark rather, must be a figure of true worship. Now, the high priest recognized, as did Israel, that what was behind that veil was so sacred and so holy that it could be nothing other than a representation of Jehovah God. Now, there was something about that that was to be valued because it was not like anything that they'd ever seen or heard about. And wouldn't you say that Jesus is like nothing you've ever seen or heard about? He's incomparable. Now, first we see that Jesus is incorruptible in his humanity. The instructions for making the ark are given in Exodus uh, chapter 25. In verse number 10 it says, And thou shalt make an ark of shittim wood. Now, this particular wood was a wood that grew in the desert, and it was known for its hardness and its durability. God had Israel make that or use that particular wood because it would represent the incorruptible nature of Christ's humanity. 
Christ withstood God's test. God put him on the proving ground of flesh. He gave him a human nature and he brought him under the severest of trials. He was tried by Satan under the worst of conditions. And after being tested and tried, Jesus came out unscathed. He never yielded to any temptation of sin. Now, even lost, unconverted men could see that there was nothing wrong in Jesus. If you remember at his crucifixion, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. And the only way that they could ever accuse him was to bring false accusers, to, to bring liars, to testify and, and tell all these different kinds of lies about him. Now, that hard desert wood that was used said that Christ would withstand all of the tests and he would not fail. Now, just for a moment, I want to, to look here at this desert wood and see how just, just how symbolic that it was. This is the same plant that's spoken of in Isaiah chapter 53. There the scripture says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when men shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now this shittim tree was a tree that would thrive. It could grow in a desert, barren land. And when Christ came, he came into a dry, barren land, a land that was devoid of the Spirit. But do you remember what happened when Jesus sat on that well, on the edge of the well in John chapter 4? When the woman came to draw water, he told her that he could give her water, that if she would drink of it, she would never thirst again. Then also this tree had long thorns on it. And is it any coincidence that we read about the crucifixion of Christ and it talks about the crown of thorns that was placed upon his brow? It was also a tree that when you pierced the bark, there was a healing gum that came out of it. They used that for medicinal purposes. And what happened when Jesus Christ was pierced, when those nails were driven into his hands and his feet on the cross, the blood flowed down, and that blood was able to make men clean from their sins. A healing balm of salvation. So the body of Jesus was incorruptible. It was perfectly suited for what God gave for it to do. Uh, Christ did what no other man could do because he was incorruptible in his humanity. And then we also see in this ark that Jesus is incomparable in his deity. Verse number 11 in Exodus 25 says, And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. So gold overlaid the wooden structure of the box. And then on top of the box there was a border like a crown of gold. It was fashioned and shaped so it pointed up like a crown, and that went around the entire perimeter. Gold stands for deity, and that crown says that Christ is God of all gods, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. So in that ark, Jesus is not only pictured as a man, but he's pictured as the reigning king in the office of his kingship. He is God. Now, how appropriate is, is it that when we come to the book of Revelation, there we see Christ in his kingship. We see the coronation of Christ. Now, I believe that there's a a very interesting part of the ark that's really not often discussed. And we find this in the 13th verse of Revelation 25. It says, And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. 
Those staves were used to transport the ark. And you'll notice that when the ark was in the Holy of Holies, when it wasn't even being moved, that those staves were to remain in the rings. They weren't to be taken out. They were always there. Now, those staves represented that as long as Israel was traveling, as long as Canaan uh, was to be completely possessed, there would be battles to be fought. And enemies needed to be conquered. And throughout all those battles, God would always be with them. The staves remained in those rings for another 450 years. They were there until Solomon built the temple. And at that time, uh, Israel's uh, enemies had been subdued. And so when God allowed the temple to be built, they brought all the furnishings of the tabernacle into that temple when it was completed. Now, if you'll turn over just a few pages to the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, I want to read something here. And uh, this tells us what happened when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple. And remember that the temple is emblematic of the temple that's in heaven. Now, this is in the 8th chapter, verse number 4 of 1 Kings. It says, And they brought up the Ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those that the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves, that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without, and there they are unto this day. Now, it was only when the ark was in a permanent place, when all the enemies were vanquished, that the staves were removed. And the symbolism there is that Christ is the conquering king. And not until the last battle is fought and won, not until all of it's over, will there be complete rest. So Christ is not going to stop fighting for us. He's given that guarantee that he'll bring us into that heavenly kingdom. Our salvation is secured. And so he's going to bring every person who is a believer safely home. Now, even though those staves were taken out, they still remained in the most holy place. And there is another picture. I mean, every time something happens, it seems there's a picture here. And the picture is that Christ will sit down in the throne of God when all of this is done. When the book of Revelation is over, when the last enemy is conquered, Christ sits down on the throne of God. Now, when John saw the temple, and he saw the temple in heaven opened up, there were no staves in that ark. This is an ark that never needs to be moved because Christ is going to rule and reign forever. Just as Scripture says, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, Jesus is a king. He's God. But unconverted men don't see him that way now. Uh, Natural men believe that Jesus was just a man. And until they've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit of God, that's what they always see him as. They see him as a man. But when you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, the first way that you see Jesus is as God. See, gold covers the wood. That's what they did in the Ark of the Covenant. And those who know the real Jesus, who understand him, see him first in his deity. 
And I want to show you for just a moment the difference between men that have been enlightened by the knowledge of Jesus Christ and those that are still walking in the natural light of the flesh. You may remember this about a a story of a blind man that Jesus healed. Turn over to uh, John chapter 9 for just a moment. And this is the story where uh, Jesus spat on the ground. He made a little ball of clay and he put it on the eyes of a blind man. Then he told that blind man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, it so happened that this blind man was one who was blind from his birth. And uh, the day that Jesus healed him was the Sabbath day. And that caused a lot of problem, a lot of contention. The Pharisees claimed that because Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, that he couldn't be from God. He's broken God's commandments. And so in John chapter 9, verse number 16, the Scripture says, Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. So here we've got a fight going on. Is Jesus God? Is he a man? And what comes after this? There's a lot of argument here about the validity of the miracle. There's some discussion with the man's parents. There's some talk about how the Pharisees refused to believe that Jesus could possibly be from God. But we want to pick up the reading where the Pharisees begin to inquire to the blind man. They begin to ask him, what actually happened to you? Now, they'd already asked him many times before, but they come back to it again. What actually happened to you? Look at verse number 24. Then called, or then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, they're talking about Christ there. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then they said, said they to him again, what, what did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I've told you already. You did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. You know, I always love that verse. I just love that verse. I mean, here is this old blind man, didn't know, as far as they were concerned, didn't know anything about, about uh, uh, spiritual things. He, he wasn't somebody who served in the temple. He, he wasn't somebody who was like the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and so forth. And he makes that great statement. Why, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. See, he's teaching them now. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Now do you see the difference in people? The unenlightened mind, what does it see? Just the humanity of Christ. If they just figure, well, he's like all other men. He's just a sinner like everybody. But when Jesus comes in and he shines that miracle of faith into a person's heart, it becomes apparent he's not a sinner. He's God. He is God. Only God can do these kinds of miracles. So there's nobody like Jesus. He's incomparable in his deity. So he is the real figure of worship. Now, I want you to notice lastly this evening that Jesus is the fullness of worship. 
Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now let's see if we can hurry on and finish here. But the fullness of Christ is seen by what was put into the ark. There were some things that were placed on the inside, and Hebrews chapter 9 tells us what those are. Hebrews 9, verse number 2, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the uh, table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now there it's talking about the first compartment, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. So here we find there are three different articles that are placed into the ark. A golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now, these three different articles combined speak of the fullness of the worship of Christ. Now, first we see God's provision. God's provision, and that's shown in the manna. Now, I don't have time to relate to you the whole story about manna. I think you know that. Uh, God did not take Israel into the wilderness just to let them starve. But if you remember, that's exactly what they accused him of. Somewhere, depends on who you read after or talk to about it, there were somewhere between 2 and 6 million people who went into the desert, crossed those desert sands, and it should have taken them about three weeks to get where they were going. And instead... It took 40 years, 40 years to get where they were going. Now, it takes a lot to feed that many people for 40 years. But God wasn't going to let them starve. And so he sent down manna from heaven, and that manna fed them the entire time. Now, the manna speaks of Jesus as the bread of life. It tells us that Jesus is our provision. The manna was put into a golden pot and then put into the Ark of the Covenant. And once again, that gold represents the deity of Christ. And because Christ is eternal God, all who partake of the provision of God will live forever. So Jesus said, those who believe in him will never hunger and they'll never thirst. So in the ark, we see the fullness of God's provision. Secondly, we see the fullness of God's selection. And that's found in the rod. Uh, In the ark was also placed Aaron's rod that budded. Now, do you know why that that... Rod came alive and it sprouted life? Well, it was to prove who was the one who was really chosen by God to be the high priest. Now, we find that in Numbers chapter 16 and 17. Uh, Some of the Israelites began to murmur that Moses and Aaron should share the leadership of Israel with them. They didn't think that Moses was the anointed of God, and so they told Moses, well, you need to let us have some of the leadership of the people. And they just thought that Moses had assumed the leadership on his own. So Moses said, well, fellows, let's have a test over this, and let's see who is it that God has chosen. He said, you guys, all of you, you come tomorrow, and you bring a censer with you, and you put fire into that censer, and you burn it before God. And then God's going to show us which of us is chosen. So there were 250 of them that brought their censers, and they brought those to Moses. And uh, Moses and Aaron brought theirs. They all gathered together. And in this part of the story, the end of that part of the story, is that the earth opened up and it swallowed all 250 of those men. Now, you would think that would be the end of it. I mean, that pretty much would settle the question, but it didn't. The people began to murmur again, and they began to blame Moses. And they said, well, it's your fault that these 250 people died. And so God said, well, I've had enough of that. 
And so God sent a plague on Israel. And there were 14,700 people who died in that plague. And there would have been more that died. But Moses instructed Aaron out of compassion to make an atonement for the people. So God said, well, we're going to settle this once for all. We're going to have a test. And so he said, I want each of the tribes to bring a rod. I want you to bring a piece of a wooden stick, just an old branch, a piece of a wooden stick, and I want you to write your name on that. And so they collected 12 rods, one that came from every tribe in Israel. And then Moses collected all those rods with one that had the tribe of Levi on it and one that was Aaron's rod. And they took that into the tabernacle and they left it. The next day, Moses came back and he checked all of those rods and he found one that was different from all of the others. One had blossomed. And further, it had almonds that were growing on it. And it just so happened that that rod that budded was Aaron's rod. And so that's when God instructed Moses to take that rod. He said, you put that into the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what that represents is Jesus. It represents that Jesus is the one who was chosen by God to be our Savior. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God calls Jesus mine elect. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So that rod shows that God's choice to bear our sins was his own son, Jesus Christ. Now there are three things that we want to notice about the rod. First of all, it budded. And that shows us that the dead came to life. Here was just a stick that had been cut off of a tree. It was an old dead twig. And God caused it to bud. And that shows that God brings the dead to life. And when that speaks of Jesus, what does it say? Well, he was crucified. He was dead. They put him into the tomb. And three days later, Jesus came back to life. The resurrection was actually the validation of Christ's work. He's the only one, by virtue of his own inherent power, was ever able to come out of the grave. He has the power of an endless life. Then secondly, the rod blossomed. When a tree blossoms, you know, I'm, I'm not an arborist, so I, I'm, I'm not a horticulturist or anything like that, but uh, when a tree blossoms, that's a sign that there's fruit. There's a fruit that's going to come. So that's the third thing that happened to the rod. It bore fruit. Almonds grew on a dead twig. The fruit of Christ's resurrection is that all who believe in him will also live. So not only did Christ come out of the grave, but all believers are going to come out of their graves. When Jesus comes again, he's going to call the dead out of their graves. So Revelation, what we've been reading there, that's the unfolding of all these events that are going to happen when Christ comes back and he calls his people home. God said, you keep Aaron's rod that budded and you place that into the ark. Now the third article in the ark showed the fullness of God's perfection. And that was the law. Now, you remember the story of what happened when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? He came down with the uh, tables of the law that God had given, and he saw that the people were worshiping around a golden calf. And Moses became very angry about that, so he threw down the tables of the law and broke them. And that was when God, by his own finger, wrote a new set of laws, and the same laws, but on a, on a different set of tablets, and he told Moses to put those into the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now what that shows is that the law of God was kept perfectly by Christ. The Ark of the Covenant, which represents Christ, had the tables of the law on the inside. And that shows us that the law of God kept in the Ark, the laws of God were kept by Jesus Christ. Christ had to keep all of the law perfectly. He had to be a perfect man. Because if he hadn't been, he wouldn't have been an acceptable sacrifice. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Christ's teachings emphasize that there's only one type of righteousness by which a man can see God. That is God's perfect righteousness. And it's a righteousness that is imputed to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, and you know it well by now, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And what is the righteousness that exceeds Christ's own righteousness earned by keeping the law of God perfectly? And so every person who is a believer in Christ is saved because he believes this great truth. Christ is our righteousness. He died for our sins. And so he paid for our sins by that sacrifice of his body, a body in which he kept all of God's laws perfectly. So here we find just these wonderful pictures that are found in the Ark of the Covenant. This is a significant thing when John saw the temple of God opened up in heaven and there he saw that Ark. It spoke of Jesus Christ. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what we learn from that is the person and work of Christ. Again, he is king of kings and lord of lords. And the scripture says, and he shall reign forever and ever. When we taught on the tabernacle, I uh, used some words. I don't know if you remember this. I used some words of, of John Flavel. Uh, John Flavel has a, has a, a collection of sermons. Uh, he's an old Puritan preacher. And uh, he has a collection of sermons called The Method of Grace. And if you are hungering and thirsting for good material to read, there are two books that I could highly recommend to you, which are The Method of Grace and also The Fountain of Life that were written by John Flavel. Two absolutely magnificent books. But in The Method of Grace, he often ended each of his sermons with this phrase, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the many blessings that you've given us. And we just thank you for Jesus Christ. These wonderful pictures that we've seen of him tonight, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, both God and man, the perfect man who was able to bear our sins upon the cross of Calvary. We thank you for him. And as we sing tonight, as we end our service this evening, help us, Lord that we might keep our minds and our hearts upon the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen.